Um, so I'll do a brief recap um, because, well, I've taught long enough to know that uh, we don't always remember what we heard in a previous class, at least freshmen don't, uh, and I think that's a human thing as well. Uh, so I won't, I won't categorize you all. Uh, I wouldn't be so cruel. Um, so let me, this is, this is how I started last week. Uh, I, I gave a few preliminary remarks to get us started. I said that uh, I'm going to take as a starting point that uh, for Christians, sex is reserved for uh, married couples only. So that uh, the, the conversation that we're primarily having here uh, is going to do with the, the church's views on gay marriage and then same-sex sexual activity within that context. Uh, so there's, no, there's not going to be any advocating for um, same-sex sexual activity outside of um, marriage. The question is, is there a place for that within uh, uh, marriage? Uh, the second thing is uh, that it's important that we define our terms so that we're not just talking about um, homosexuality in general um, or kind of broadly saying things like gay lifestyle, whatever that might mean, uh, but that we're going to try to be more specific. So we're going to distinguish between same-sex attraction and same-sex sexual activity uh, and uh, same-sex sexual activity and gay marriage. So um, giving us a little bit more um, clarity of our terms. Uh, I also said that this is not about trying to just be PC or... Um, you know, uh, fearing the language police, but that it's important how we use our words uh, if we are going to have a kind of missional awareness uh, that uh, if we are uh, going into this uh, without clarity, without being cautious about our language, we might place unnecessarily st unnecessary stumbling blocks uh, between others and the gospel, and that the law of love uh, calls us to do this uh, with some thoughtfulness and some compassion, uh, whatever your convictions on this, we need to take seriously that the suicide and homelessness rates are much higher for gay and lesbian teens than for straight teens. Um, so, some things to bear in mind. I also mentioned that I am um, approaching this topic uh, as one who has my own struggle, struggles with sexual morality. Um, and so I kind of liken myself to the person uh, who has a plank in his own eye, trying to help everyone see a little more clearly through the specks in their own eye. And then the last kind of preliminary remark was that our focus is going to be on the church's view, not on what we should do at a state level. Uh, so I follow that up with saying, uh, as kind of we started this class uh, several weeks ago, uh, with the insufficiency of appealing to uh, platitudes or um, proof text um, or certain feelings. Uh, and so I, I walked us through that in brief, saying um, that kind of my recurring comment about that move is that such appeals are insufficient but not... Irrelevant. I don't know how to spell irrelevant. I don't know if that's an A or an E. <laughs> they won't know, whoever's listening. Um, it was spelled correctly. Um, so it's not that we're completely dismissive of certain proof text or platitudes. It's just that they're not conversation enders. And my experience, too often that's what happens. Uh, it starts with, well, I just think and as though that's the end of the conversation. Well, if you're going to take on something this complex and you start out with, I just think, and, and imagine you're going to end the conversation, then you're probably being intellectually lazy. Um, so, um, a few things that I worked through. The, the platitudes. Um, 
it's natural. Um, and I said rather than uh, get into this complicated issue about nature versus nurture, um, we, we see that this might be relevant to the conversation, but it's not the conversation ender. It's all together uh, part of our Christian conviction that we have natural inclinations that we nonetheless have to uh, limit and restrict. Uh, so that doesn't, that doesn't fix or answer all the questions. Or uh, we're not supposed to judge each other. And in fact, that's a, a kind of poor reading of those teachings, that Christians are supposed to hold each other to certain standards, although we shouldn't do so in ways that are condemning. Uh, it's not loving uh, to, uh, to say no to this. Well, uh, it does matter that we practice compassion and love, but sometimes the most loving thing to do is to uh, put up certain restrictions. So, those are not irrelevant, but they're not sufficient as conversation enders. Similar with uh, certain proof texts. Uh, to appeal to Genesis 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah is just an unhelpful appeal because that's about uh, inhospitality and uh, rape, not covenantal, consensual, um, same-sex sexual activity. Or uh, to appeal to um, Leviticus 20 verse 13 uh, is, um, is insufficient, though not irrelevant, because we don't uphold all of Leviticus. Uh, but it is scripture, so it matters. It's just not the end of the conversation. Uh, I also said that appealing to the sense of the Spirit is insufficient, but not irrelevant. Part of the reason it's insufficient uh, is because as Christians, we assume that the, uh, the authoritative revelation uh, that the Spirit speaks through is scripture. So rather than um, uh, our discernment telling us kind of our discerning of the Spirit, then telling us that we have to uh, override Scripture. Instead, we should be testing what we think we're discerning against the witness of Scripture, uh, rather than the reverse. In addition, uh, I mentioned that um, there is no need in this, uh, wherever you fall in this, especially if you, I guess, fall in the traditional view, to say, oh no, there's no way that uh, gay and lesbian Christians could evidence the fruit of the Spirit. Um, but I think the, the witness of Scripture is that we are all uh, kind of works in progress so that we are showing the fruit of the Spirit in some areas of our lives and not others. So appealing to the presence of the Spirit is not a conversation ender, um, but it's not irrelevant either. We should be looking for that and thinking about what we do uh, with those things. So that's, that's kind of where we, uh, what we covered last week as a little reminder. And now... Uh, we will get into some new stuff. So, uh, my wife was asking me this morning how I'm feeling about this, and I said, anxious. Uh, this, is, this is not uh, an easy thing to teach on uh, for multiple reasons. Um, I think this has become one of those topics that's leading to division in the church. Uh, that can be something like a line in the sand. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there's the shallow part of me that just wants to be liked. Uh, and there's also the deeper um, parts that, uh, that want to bring healing to a difficult uh, situation in the church. So I don't have all the answers. I'm giving you what I think is the, uh, the best way to understand this all within a Christian framework. Uh, to, to get there, the way I've organized this class, and this is going to go three weeks because I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, <laughs> this week, um, I will, uh, first part of class, I will explain what, um, what our 
some of the, the things that Christians point to to justify uh, same-sex marriage within the church. Um, and then I will follow that up with the kind of counterclaims to that. So I'll try to present both sides, and um, I will weigh in on where I currently am on this, uh, on this issue. Um, and then um, probably hold off till next week on thinking about how this maps onto our bullseye, pastoral responses, and Q&A. So this is kind of um, going a little bit deeper than the proof text and platitudes uh, and appealing to the feelings, um, doing something a little bit more substantial. So how might some uh, justify same-sex marriage uh, as Christians, trying to be faithful to um, Christian, uh, a Christian framework? As, and uh, you know, I could be, mis- or uh, I don't have everything here, but I think the two main appeals that I've seen to uh, justify same-sex marriage, despite what seems to be the New Testament prohibitions um, on this. Uh, first is, uh, the first primary way of doing this is to say something like, uh, the biblical prohibitions, biblical prohibitions, um, we're speaking to a very, emphasis on very, different cultural situation. The biblical prohibitions were speaking to a very different cultural situation. And how this gets explained um, is maybe three ways. Um, That would be that there was uh, little or maybe no avenue for, uh, say, same-sex marriage, that same-sex prohibitions were often speaking to pederasty, that's how you men with boys, Um, and that uh, some of the same-sex sexual activity Uh, was about dominance or status, not love or union. So, this kind of first appeal is saying, yes, we do submit to Scripture as authoritative. Um, We cannot discount that as Christians. However, what Scripture is prohibiting is not what we are advocating for. What Scripture was prohibiting is same-sex sexual activity that was occurring outside the context of marriage, which would be seen as unchristian, or same-sex sexual activity that would be closer to rape with um, adult males and boys, or it was prohibiting um, same-sex sexual activity uh, that was, uh, in an honor-shame culture, a way of showing kind of dominance <coughs> rather than it being about um, love and union, which is what kind of the biblical witness of what sex was, was meant to be about, at least in part. Uh, and so they're saying, yes, these biblical prohibitions are still relevant. These things are still no-nos. Uh, however, this doesn't uh, speak to our current context uh, where there might be consensual, covenantal, 
uh, same-sex sexual activity um, within marriage. So that's, that's the first appeal. Uh, the second is to say uh, that, yes, the Bible prohibits... So neither one of these, I think these are the two strongest kind of cases, um, are, are simply ignoring the scriptures. They're saying we need to read them differently. So yes, the Bible prohibits um, same-sex sexual activity, but um, you might say something like, we appeal to a higher law. And that is the law of uh, uh, love or compassion, mercy. Yes, the Bible prohibits this. However, uh, when that prohibition, you know, when Paul is, is saying this kind of stuff in Romans or in 1 Corinthians or in 1 Timothy, um, he was, uh, in his context, uh, speaking the best he knew about the situation and he wasn't aware of how these prohibitions um, would have um, maybe devastating or particularly burdensome consequences on those who have same-sex attraction. Uh, and so, uh, because uh, we um, are more aware of the ramifications of these prohibitions, uh, that, uh, that uh, we appeal to the higher law that uh, we should practice compassion and love. Um, so we might think of this in parallel to um, Jesus' uh, breaking the Sabbath law uh, to heal those uh, who were hurting. And so if you, if you know these um, stories of Jesus seemingly breaking the Sabbath law, um, what's, when Jesus argues with like the Pharisees or the lawyers, um, he doesn't say, no, this doesn't count. This isn't actually breaking. Uh, he doesn't even enter the conversation about whether this is breaking Sabbath law or not. Instead, he says, uh, or he essentially shows that a higher law is at work. Of course we help the suffering. So was Jesus maybe breaking Sabbath law? Arguably. Uh, but it's because he was upholding um, the law of compassion or the law of love. And so one might say uh, that is, is what um, we might appeal to here. Uh, and then this gets further supported, um, going back to what I was saying was insufficient but not irrelevant, but then someone might say, and we can add to this, though it's not sufficient of itself, the uh, nonetheless relevant uh, experience in, of um, the Holy Spirit in the lives of gay and lesbian Christians. So those, I think, represent uh, two of the strongest cases um, to be made for um, the church... Um, uh, holding a high view of Scripture, and at the same time saying um, that uh, same-sex sexual activity within um, marriage, then gay, like a, a same-sex marriage, is is okay. All right, so that's the case four, and then uh, the counter uh, case um, would be. Um, we'll start with with this one here. Um, the, the first thing that someone might say would be um, this is um, making too big of a claim that doesn't actually fit as well with the 
um, with the actual cultural experience. So um, in this case, uh, the cultural situation, we can say, yes, there's a difference between 21st century and 1st century. No one's going to debate that. Uh, but it is not so different uh, as we might think. So yes, pederasty was a problem. And yes, sometimes same-sex sexual activity was about dominance and status and not about uh, union. And yes, uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, same-sex marriage. And yet, uh, there is nonetheless um, evidence that there was consensual, covenantal, same-sex marriage in the ancient world and that Paul would have likely been aware of that. And so this appeal ultimately um, is... Um, is not historically informed enough. Uh, so, let me read you a few examples. Um, from uh, This is a guy, what a terrible name he's got, Preston Sprinkle. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't get much worse than that. You would think, um, but you know, um, it's memorable, so at least he's got that going for him. Uh, he wrote this, uh, he's, he takes a traditional uh, view on this. Uh, he wrote what I think is an excellent book uh, advocating for a traditional view called People to be Loved. Uh, one of the things I would recommend uh, that uh, people read this book um, as he um, very nicely explains how the church has often mishandled this um, and, uh, and then tries to bring this into conversation with solid New Testament work. But anyway, uh, here's some examples he points to to say this move is ultimately not historically informed enough. Um, so, where's my... Okay. So, he starts with uh, some examples in the ancient Greek um, culture, because we're thinking in a Greco-Roman context, and how the Greeks had influence on uh, that first century world. So, um, Agathon was by all modern standards gay, and he had a lifelong lover of equal age and status named Pisanias, and this is something that Plato records. Parmenides was in a homosexual relationship with Xenon, um, and the relationship between the epic Greek heroes Achilles and Patroclus, I don't know how to pronounce any of these, was considered by many ancient authors as homoerotic and consensual, as you might see in Plato, or another name I can't pronounce. Um, and then he uh, shows examples in the Roman world. Consensual same-sex love, even marriages, can be found among women around the time of Paul. Um, Iamblichus, from the second century, talks about the marriage between two women named Berenike and Mesopotamia. Lucian of Samosota mentions the marriage of Megala and Demonassa. Clement of Alexandria refers to women-women marriage. And Ptolemy of Alexandria refers to women taking other women as lawful wives. Likewise, Sifra on Leviticus, so this is, you might think of this as like rabbinic, rabbinic writings, prohibits not just female eroticism, but women marrying women. The assumption is that people were practicing this. Um, other examples could be cited, but suffice it to say, there was a broad spectrum of same-sex relations available to Paul. We cannot assume that Paul only had non-consensual and unhealthy homosexual relations in view, and therefore condemned only these types of relations. Paul most probably was aware of at least some consensual, even marital unions among both men and women of the same gender. So, the counter-argument is, um, while there is some truth to this, it's not the whole story. Uh, there's more going on here. So, if you're wanting to make the case uh, culturally, um, this is currently um, 
uh, helpful, but ultimately uh, not fully convincing. Um, and this, in my own reading, is where uh, most biblical scholars who are advocating for same-sex marriage recognized by the church, this is more of where they appeal to. Uh, I think most biblical scholars that I've read recognize that um, this is ultimately kind of number one here. Uh, not, it can't carry the weight that it's trying to. So, um, what about um, this one? What do we do, or what do um, the, those who uphold a traditional view, uh, how might they respond to this? So, um, I will um, start with uh, where they would say, well, first of all, let's recognize um, what even the second, um, the second position advocates, or rec- not advocates, but recognizes, and that is that there is a biblical witness that is, to borrow Richard Hayes' language, univocal, one voice, basically Old through New Testament, uh, that prohibits same-sex sexual activity. So this is where I said something like, Leviticus is insufficient but not irrelevant. We, it does matter that there was some Old Testament teaching on this. It's just not um, the conversation ender. Uh, but we have appeals to, uh, we have prohibitions or references to this, like in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. Some see this implied in Jesus' own teaching, where he um, speaks of marriage as between man and woman. Um, the implications uh, where uh, the language of sexual immorality that you'll get in the New Testament is a translation of the Greek word porneia, and that seems to be um, uh, carrying um, or kind of assuming uh, the Jewish views on what counts as sexual immorality, which would include same-sex sexual practice. Um, and then uh, the main text that is uh, particularly weighty in all this is what you find in Romans chapter 1, uh, where, uh, here I'll just read it. So as Paul is speaking of uh, the uh, kind of human condition that uh, refuses or to recognize God as God, he goes on, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. So on Romans 1, um, if uh, appealing to what I understand to be the kind of consensus of New Testament scholars, although there are dissenters, um, Paul seems to be pretty clearly here (coughs) speaking to something more than um, than these kinds of um, uh, problematic, particularly obviously problematic, same-sex sexual activity that we had earlier, uh, and is speaking to something that would much more likely fall under the category of consensual, uh, especially since he has women giving themselves uh, to other women. Uh, there is no clear reference to anything uh, forced um, in this, and... When Paul speaks about it going against nature, uh, we have to read that in context. And nature, 
pretty clearly in this context, Paul's talking about cre- the created um, uh, plan of male and female, not um, kind of how I was born. Uh, that wouldn't have been the language or the framework that Paul is dealing with. Um, so, um, this is not particularly <clears throat> controversial that the, the biblical witness seems to be pretty univocal on this. Now, again, this doesn't mean you have to fall on one side or other on this, because remember, back here, there are folks who are advocating for same-sex marriage in the church who could also say, yes, the New Testament witness is univocal on this. However, um, but those of the traditional view would less likely follow that up with a however and would stop at um, the biblical witness is univocal. That's pretty powerful. What would get added to this as further weightiness would be uh, the global and historic witness to this. So if, um, if part of the question that we are trying to wrestle with, and we absolutely should be wrestling with this, um, is there maybe a higher law at work? Should love and compassion um, cause the church to overturn uh, what has been the traditional teaching? Um, they, uh, the advocates of traditional view of marriage might say, well, the global church, not every single person, but as a whole, the global church would seem to say, no, we uphold the traditional view of this, and that this fits church tradition, as far as I'm aware. Um, so, as for the global church, um, one of the things that I think um, is maybe hard to hear, uh, but it is worth bringing into the conversation is uh, is in our Western culture, we live in a uh, very broken um, society when it comes to things regarding sex, sexuality, sexual morality, and marriage. I mean, if any if any culture thinks they should be the ethical pioneers, it might not be 21st century. American culture, um, given the way in which uh, it is almost undeniable how messed up we are with regards to um, uh, sex and marriage. It's a mess. Um, And I think, um, I mean, I'm talking not about, uh, I'm not even thinking about anything regarding uh, same-sex stuff. I'm thinking about how advertisements for almost everything, almost everything involves sex, it seems like. You want to sell toothpaste? Show some cleavage, right? Like, what is wrong with our, our, our um, society in which we are obsessed in this area? Um, and when uh, our, our um, divorce rates are as high as they are, something, now this is not meant to give any guilt to those who are divorced in here, but we, we have some, something's gone wrong in our culture. Uh, and so this isn't saying then the West has no voice to bring to it, but it is to say maybe we should pump the brakes about being the leaders in this. So here is, uh, I don't know if you guys were paying attention as the Methodist Church was trying to navigate this issue. Um, and uh, one of the, the kind of fascinating things about the Methodist Church is that they are doing it, trying to do it as a global church. Um, and so here is one African uh, bishop who is saying um, maybe um, it's not such a good idea uh, to do this for certain reasons. So here is this African bishop's uh, claim. Friends, please hear me. We Africans are not afraid of our sisters and brothers who identify as lesbian, 
gay, bisexual, transgendered, questioning, or queer. We love them, and we hope the best for them. But we know of no compelling arguments for forsaking our church's understanding of Scripture and the teachings of the church universal. And then, please hear me when I say, as graciously as I can, and here's the part where maybe you lean in because I think this is carries some weight. We Africans are not children in need of Western enlightenment when it comes to the church's sexual ethics. We do not need to hear a progressive U.S. bishop lecture us about our need to grow up. Let me assure you, we Africans, whether we have liked it or not, have had to engage in this debate for many years now. We stand with the global church, not a culturally liberal church elite in the U.S. We stand with our Filipino friends. We stand with our sisters and brothers in Europe and Asia. And yes, we stand with those in America. We stand with farmers in, in Zambia, tech workers in Nairobi, Sunday school teachers in Nigeria, biblical scholars in Liberia, pastors in the Congo, and the United, the United Methodist women and the Ivory Coast, and thousands of other United Methodists all across Africa who have heard no compelling reasons for changing our sexual ethics, our teachings on marriage, and our ordination standards. So, <clears throat> those who are uh, saying... <clears throat> Uh, we are trying to take seriously that there may be a higher law worth uh, appealing to that might overturn what seems to be the univocal witness of Scripture. However, because the global church seems to uh, be disagreeing on this uh, with many in the West, because the West is uh, pretty obviously uh, has some distortions with regard to sexual morality in marriage, um, and uh, because the consistent church tradition for 2,000 years um, and that is not only that length of tradition, but the breadth, Catholic, Orthodox, you see this in the Church Fathers, although certainly they, don't, they often handle it poorly. Um, but nonetheless, that consistent tradition is pretty weighty, uh, that uh, we are moving too quickly um, to appeal to this higher law when um, it seems as though uh, that goes against uh, a lot of length and breadth of tradition, uh, and ongoing consensus uh, throughout the global church. All right, so, I know that's, that's a lot. Um, let's see if there's something I'm, I'm uh, overlooking here. All right. Uh, the other book that I will suggest that every person in this room would do well to read is, um, is a book by a guy named Wesley Hill, who is a theologian uh, who uh, is, identifies as a gay Christian and um, who uh, believes that the uh, traditional view of marriage is still binding. And uh, his book is called uh, Washed and Waiting. It's picking up on the language that we're washed, we're made whole in Christ, and yet we don't experience the full um, uh, healing in this life. What, um, let, me, let me turn to his words here, as um, he might be able to speak a little bit to what seems to be um, the uh, insufficiency of the Wesley Hill. Um, the insufficiency of what I've just gone through with the biblical and historic um, views. So he's still saying we, we haven't 
And here's one who is advocating for the traditional view. He's saying, we still need to do a better job. This is not something that we ignore. So here's his own reflections. This is a beautiful book. It's like 100 pages long. It will kick your butt regardless of where you are uh, on this issue. Um, his, uh, his integrity and uh, his honesty um, was honestly pretty um, convicting uh, as he shared his story of walking through this. Um, so, yeah, it's autobiographical. He's a, he's a great writer. Um, so highly recommend. could read it in an afternoon. Uh, What's his name again? Wesley Hill, and it's called Washed and Waiting. And it is not a everything is rosy. That's part of the, the power of this book. So here is a little bit of his reflection on uh, what I have just kind of presented as the, uh, tr- the, the argument for the traditional view of marriage. At times, though, for me and many others, the weight of the biblical witness and the church's traditional teachings against homosexual practice can seem rather unpersuasive. The list of Bible passages and the statements from the Vatican and other church leaders just don't seem compelling enough to keep gay and lesbian people from looking for sexual fulfillment in homosexual relationships. In fact, not only are they not compelling, these biblical texts and Christian pronouncements appear outdated, perhaps slightly cruel, and in any case, not really workable or attainable. There are other reasons the church's traditional no to homosexual practice doesn't seem compelling. One is that it simply seems out of character with the Christian message of love, grace, and abundant life. Occasionally it strikes me again how strange it is to talk about the gospel, Christianity's good news, demanding anything that would squelch my happiness, much less demanding abstinence from homosexual partnerships and homoerotic passions and activities. If the gospel really is full of hope and promise, surely it must endorse or at least not oppose people entering into loving, erotically expressive same-sex relationships. How could the gospel be opposed to love? Everything in our culture tells us that the scriptural witness and the church's no to homosexual practice are onerous, oppressive, stifling, perhaps even mildly sadistic. Being sexually active is the way to be most alive, to be fully, truly beautiful human. So we are told by a chorus of influential voices. So this is not a naive rosy view of things. This is his kind of raw experience of hearing this, wrestling with this, trying to make sense of it in light of what the gospel is. Uh, and so I'll be, I'll be appealing to his, um, his writings on this because I think it's not fair for me to speak um, just uh, in my own kind of distance way on this. So we start, I think, um, if we return to this very weighty, and if, if you're not compelled at all by this, uh, then it might be a heart issue. Uh, I'm not saying you have to be persuaded, but if this doesn't at least hit you, um, then this might be the place for you to start and read this book and think, this, this is not a light thing. This is not just suck it up and deal with it. Um, that lacks compassion. And it, it suggests, too, that uh, we have been dealing with this at an arm's length as an issue and not as a kind of personal experience. So, um, here is his experience of uh, the suffering. So, if, if you're wondering what, what's so hard about this, why, why can't we just say, uh, don't do it and move on? Um, let me give you a little, a little bit of his reflection on this as a teaser for you to read more um, 
at the very least, and uh, I would advocate if you take a traditional view uh, that uh, you speak to people um, so that it is not just a, um, a theoretical thing. So, for instance, he writes, For me, being a Christian who experiences intense homoerotic desires has meant loneliness. Feelings of isolation, fears that I will be alone all my life with my brokenness, that no one will be there for me for the long haul to walk this road. Finally, in my life and the lives of many others, shame has been a constant struggle in the effort to live out the life of Christ and His Spirit in homosexual terms. Guilt over homosexual sin, a nagging, this is so heartbreaking, a nagging, unshakable feeling of being damaged goods, a sense of being broken beyond repair, and therefore of being regularly, unavoidably displeasing to God. These all seem endemic to much homosexual Christian experience. This is heartbreaking for a couple reasons. One, simply because it's painful. Second, because so much of it is the church's fault. We have made our churches a place that is not safe to talk about this, to be openly same-sex attracted. And, And so rather than communicating God's love and God's acceptance in the midst of all of our messiness, we have communicated shame and guilt and rejection too often. And so, folks who are trying to be as um, as true to their Christian faith as possible, have often had to walk that road alone, and guilt on us uh, who have made that journey so lonely and so difficult. To give you another God help. I would love to say thanks for my sexuality, but I don't feel like I can. Every attraction I experience, before I even get to intentional, willful, indulgent desire, seems bent, broken, and misshapen. I think this grieves you, but I can't seem to help it. For many of us, this kind of shame is part of our daily lives. And part of that grief is the feeling that we are perpetually, hopelessly, unsatisfying to God. We don't take that seriously. That is, I, I don't, I don't know the words for this. Um, if we are serious about some of the stuff we've gone through in this class, about how we can confess in the Apostles' Creed that we are one church, that means this isn't for those of us who hold on to a traditional view. This isn't their burden to carry alone. This is our burden to carry together to communicate God's love and God's acceptance. Uh, rather than to perpetuate the sense of shame uh, that sadly accompanies this. But Wesley Hill goes on um, to say that while there is, there, is real, there is real suffering that goes with this, the shame before God and others, even, to be clear, shame that shouldn't, uh, that's unnecessary. There is no guilt with being same-sex attracted. And the loneliness, the very real loneliness, 
He also says we must recognize that while this suffering might have its own distinct set of burdens, it's not so unique that it's unrelatable to other forms of Christian suffering. Saying, yes, the suffering is real, but all Christians have some burdens that they bear, that they, that they bear and that sometimes is part of the Christian walk. For some, that is bearing the burdens of lifelong unanswered prayers while struggling with depression or singleness or integrity when everyone seems to be getting ahead, of sticking with an unhappy marriage because there is not sufficient grounds for divorce, of the long, difficult road of taking care of burdensome loved ones, whether it be because of physical or mental, emotional issues, sometimes the difficulties of a life of devoted to those um, who heard the call to serve the poor or to be in overseas missions. Again, these are not exact parallels, and he is not claiming they are. It's just that sometimes we need to recognize that part of the Christian walk is bearing burdens. It is the difficulties um, that, that go with that journey. Struggle sometimes, lifelong struggle, as Wesley Hill advocates, should not be seen as the exception to living as a Christian in a broken world, but we might expect it to be more of the rule. So to read some of his comments on this again. And this is where I say everyone needs to read this book, regardless of where you are, because what he does is he exposes sometimes our own shallow embracing of the cross that we are called to bear daily. And we hide from it and look for comfort instead. The Christian story commends long-suffering endurance as participation in the sufferings of Christ. In light of this, my own objection that abstaining from homosexual sex will be too difficult, doesn't seem as strong or compelling as it once did. One of the hardest to swallow, most countercultural, counterintuitive implications of the gospel is that bearing up under a difficult burden with patient perseverance is a good thing. Once, when I was at a low point in my struggle, I wrote to an older single friend, how can I go on living with this frustration? I asked, feeling desperate. My friend wrote back, your email speaks in some detail about the desire for marriage and intimacy. To not experience this relationship means living with unfulfilled desire. But I assure you, even if you have to live your whole life without the blessing of marriage and family, you are not alone. Many, many people are and have been in the same boat. I am 41 years old, a virgin, and one who has never experienced physical intimacy with another woman or man. I do long for it. But God's grace is fully sufficient to accomplish His purposes in me. Furthermore, I'd suggest that living with unfulfilled desires is not the exception of the human experience, but the rule. Even most of those who are married are, as Thoreau once said, living lives of quiet regret. Maybe they married the wrong person, or have the pain of suffering within marriage, or feel trapped in their situations and are unable to fulfill a higher sense of calling. The list of unfulfilled desires goes on and on. My friend went on to say that the gospel does not necessarily promise a rescue out of the pain of living with homosexual desires. Instead, it is a message about God's strange working in and through that pain. God's alchemy of redemption, as Philip Yancey called it. And then one more. We're going to go a little long today. 
sorry if you need to leave, um, but I want to make sure and, and, uh, and present this perspective. More and more, I have the sense that what many of us need is a new conception of our per- perseverance in faith. We need to reimagine ourselves and our struggles. The temptation for me is to look at my bent and broken sexuality and conclude that with it, I will never be able to please God, to walk in a manner worthy of His calling, to hear His praise. But what if I had a conception of God-glorifying faith, holiness, and righteousness that included within it a profound element of struggle and stumbling? What if I were to view my homosexual orientation, temptations, and occasional failures not as damning disqualifications for living a Christian life, but rather as part and parcel of what it means to live by faith in a world that has fallen and scarred by sin and death. You may or may not agree with Wesley Hill, but uh, I think we would do well not to ignore uh, his perspective, particularly as he says, as he calls our attention to how the Western church has bought into a cultural vision that the fullest life involves romance, marriage, and sexual satisfaction. And while those are all blessings, they are not required to be fully alive from a Christian perspective. Our image of the fully perfect human was Jesus Christ, who experienced none of these three things. And so what he (coughs) calls our attention to throughout this book is how some of our objections are not... Uh, or maybe they reveal certain assumptions that might be less than Christian. This is not the end of our talk. We will continue this because this is only um, getting us to some even harder and more difficult questions, Um, and we will uh, try to tackle some of those next week.